Oh, dear. <laughs> this is not what I need right now. I think it's exactly what you need. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Now, rumor has it that the um, the House of Wright is expecting a new fridge. Not expecting. It's here. It's oh, it's arrived. Here. Oh, it's arrived. It's arrived. It's very exciting. Great. We've got a new fridge. It doesn't get more exciting than that. This is almost as exciting as that time you bought a chair. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we made we made, we stretched that out into like three episodes. So this will be the first of a exciting trilogy about uh, your new refrigerator. I do not want to spend three episodes talking about my fridge. The 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 long and short of it is that we this is not even. I mean, the fridge that we had came with the apartment that we're renting. Right. It's a little bit old, and the seal was was not very good on it. And so when we mentioned that to our landlady, who is very nice. She looked into getting it fixed, but in the end decided it would be easier just to buy a new fridge. Mm. And so we have a new, very fancy, very nice fridge. It's much taller than the last one, fits exactly in the space. It was touch and go whether it was going to fit, but it did. It's got two doors that open outward, French doors, I think they call them, right. not a single door that swings open. Mm. And the big improvement, which basically all fridge freezers in Japan have, but which seems to be a rare luxury here in America is that the freezer, instead of being a door which opens at the top, mm. it is a drawer, actually in this case two drawers, at the bottom. Yeah. Which is better for keeping the heat in because, as we all know, heat rises. Mm. And so having the freezer at the top is dumb. And also drawers are better at it. It covers it on all sides and it makes it easy to sort of pull things out and just take what you need and things don't fall out of it. So, Do you know the, the reason why the traditional refrigerator design has the freezer on the top? There must be a, a reason for it because it doesn't really make much, much sense from a practical day-to-day -day usage point of view to have the part of the fridge that you access most frequently down the bottom. There must be like a a functional reason why it's on the top. Do you know? I, I don't know. My guess would be, well, okay, there's two things. Number one, it's relatively recent that I think they were combined. Like it used to be they would be separate units. Mm. And so them going from separate units to a single unit is probably a similar sort of process to the separate units for a washer dryer and then getting single units with both a washer and tumble dryer installed. Right. Um, so one sort of <laughs> randomly ends up at the top, but... My guess would be that with the freezer, you want to get stuff out of it quickly so that you don't have to open it for too long. Right. And if it's at your sort of head height, then maybe the thinking was that you can just open it, see what you need, grab it and close it as quickly as possible. Whereas if you need to sort of bend down and pull things out of a drawer, maybe they're thinking, well, that's going to be inconvenient to access. You're going to have to lift things to pull things out from underneath. And so you're going to have to keep it open for longer. Hmm. That's the only thing I can think of that they might have been thinking in terms of, you know, how, how long it has to be open. Hmm. Well, I'm just scrolling through on my phone the history of refrigerators on Wikipedia. This is great. This is a slow news day on Station 13. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell me about refrigerators, Alex. Uh, it's a little difficult to... Uh, concentrate on on uh, talking and reading this at the same time so never mind okay although i can if i if i just quote a section here practical household refrigerators were introduced in 1915 and gained 
wider acceptance in the United States in the 1930s 30s as prices fell and non-toxic, non-flammable synthetic refrigerants such as Freon 12, brackets R-12, were introduced. So um, we don't know. So if anybody knows uh, the reason why the earlier refrigerator designs had the freezer on the top, I, I do suspect that there must be a technological reason why that is the way that the refrigerator works perhaps has got something to do with it interestingly enough while we're on the fascinating topic of refrigerators i've noticed that uh yes as you mentioned japanese refrigerators tend to have these drawer style freezers on the bottom interestingly most freezers that i've seen in sweden are two doors and two actual units. So one is a refrigerator and the other is a freezer. Mm. No doubt because in uh, these Scandinavian countries, when, the, uh, when it snows very heavily and it's not so easy to go out to a shop to buy supplies, you tend to rely on your freezer a lot more. So you need a lot more space in it. Right. And therefore, therefore uh, yeah, most freezers that I've seen here are actual completely separate refrigerators that look the same but... That you know, you have as much space for your refrigerator as you do for your freezer. All right, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, real time follow up. While you were trying to skim read the Wikipedia page on refrigerators, right? I searched DuckDuckGo for why is the freezer on top. Okay, and <laughs> and the most common response on a particular Quora answer that came up was that because heat rises, cold sinks. That was the reason I said it was done before. But it's more efficient for cooling the fridge. If the cold thing is at the top, then the cold also falls down into the fridge below it. Mm. And so the, the fridge doesn't have to do as much work to cool its own stuff down. Oh, I see. And in fact, back in the old, old days, before you have had electric refrigerators, it was just called an ice box, right? And right. it was literally a box with ice around it to keep right. it cold. And so the way that it would work is the stuff you wanted to be freezing would go in the icebox and the stuff you wanted to be kept cool would go in like a cupboard beneath the icebox oh, and I just see. the cool air from the icebox would travel down. Oh, I see. And so it's probably sort of historical from that that it was just naturally made sense to put it at the top. That's absolutely fascinating. There you go. Fridges. <laughs> so uh, speaking of follow-up, yes. I gather you had some. I do. So uh, last week's, uh, last time's, fantastic episode of Station 13, which if you haven't listened to, you should definitely go back and listen to and subscribe. We, we don't talk about fridges at all. Yeah, it's very good. There's, there is There are no refrigerator topics in last time's episode, but we did talk about classical pipe organs. Oh, yes. And one question that you asked me, which I was rather stumped on, was to what extent do composers specify in the musical score the kind of sound that they want the performer to use when they're performing their piece on the pipe organ. Mm. Because, as we explained last week, all of those little kind of pull-out levers that you see on either side of the organist, each one of those will actually divert the flow of air as the organist is pressing the keys to a different set of pipes that create a different kind of sound, kind of like an early synthesizer. Right. And you see them all kind of... An organist will get themselves all set up with different sounds on different manuals, which are the names of the keyboards, usually uh, two to four of them in front of the of the organist, and they've got the pedals down them, and they'll all be set up with different sounds. Mm. And you asked, how do they know what kind of sounds to use? Is it specified uh, by the composer? So 
I didn't know that, so I actually went and asked my dad. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and he gave us the definitive answer from an experienced semi-professional classical organ performer. Oh, good. Paternal follow-up? Yes. The answer is, it depends. <laughs> it depends on the composer. It depends on the era, and it depends on the composer. Right. So, in early music, in the Baroque period, generally no. There would not be any specification for any kind of sound on the score, mm -hmm. and it would be left up to the organist to figure out the best way to interpret the score with the instrument that he or she is playing. Right. So, remember that every, every pipe organ is completely different. There is no such thing as like the six-string guitar version of the pipe organ. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, okay. So each one's got different settings. That are a, bit, a bit like every sort of keyboard and synthesizer has different patches that you can use on it. That's right. Yeah. Different so Different samples. Exactly. So there will be, uh, for example, a few common sounds between them, and they'll be labeled the same way. However, between two different organs... They'll obviously sound completely different because the location is different, right. which changes the acoustics of the way the instrument is uh, resonates inside the room, which which just right. changes everything. So, my dad said that it depends entirely because of the organist, the composer doesn't know what kind of space and what kind of instrument the the music is being played on. Mm. So, therefore, they didn't specify anything, and you you would have dynamics, as in you know piano, mezzo forte, forte, that kind of thing, right? But you wouldn't have anything that specifies this should be this kind of sound or that should be that kind of sound. Right. And later on, through the classical and romantic periods, as uh, organ performances became increasingly more virtuosic and increasingly more demanding of the player uh, and the player's interpretation, uh, and the instruments became that much more elaborate and that much more varied mm. and versatile as well, that being a key factor, uh, in, in the later scores, more composers had a tendency to actually include specific instructions that this part should be this kind of sound and that part should be that kind of sound. So there you go. The answer is a little bit of both. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's that's fairly in line with what you guessed might be the case last time. So it's, mm. it's good to have that confirmed. Yes. And did you, um, just before we leave the topic of organs, uh, did you, Danny, go and listen to the uh, the two pieces that we linked in our episode show notes last time? I did. I listened to everything we linked in the show notes. It's very good. <laughs> the organ one was, was very good. Mm. The organ ones. <laughs> right. The organ ones. There were right. two of them. Or were there two? No, there was one. No, yes, there was two. That's right. I think we linked two in the... I mean, there were a lot more than two. <laughs> mm. I think we whittled it down to two by the end. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating fascinating instrument. It's kind of the uh, I mean, it is the the largest musical instrument that uh, is in existence, I believe. I suppose, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, it looks like we only put one link in last week. Oh, did we? So it was just one. There yeah. we go. So let's let's now slide comfortably from the issue, the uh, topic of classical pipe organs into fountain pens. <laughs> very just, very smooth segue indeed uh, yes <laughs> so fountain pens now actually i'd been meaning to ask you about fountain pens on the show for quite some time now because uh this was a, a topic of some discussion between us back when we uh worked together in japan it, it's an interesting thing because you know you are a programmer right and you know your job is basically to input code 
into computers using keyboards. That was the usual method. Yeah, yeah, that's right. the The idea that uh, that you would need to write something down. Yeah, sure. Of course, you take notes here and there, and uh, some of the things that you do, I'm sure, requires the assistance of a bit of paper and a bit of planning outside of the computer screen, which is great. Mm. But then the idea that you would take it a step further and actually get into the writing implement itself was is quite fascinating. And I'm curious to know, A, why it is that you became interested in fountain pens and, and B, how it has changed your, as a programmer, how it has changed your view of writing and, uh, you know, the, the experience of writing something down. Has that changed because of this, uh, you know, new love of the actual implement itself? Right. So I, I, you may be disappointed by, by the answers to these questions, but firstly... I've used fountain pens for a very long time because at my high school, which for Americans is middle school and high school combined in in England, we just have primary school and then high school. So it's from 11 years old until 18 or something like that. Hmm. At at my high school, at least at the, the first high school that I went to, it was compulsory that you had to use a fountain pen. So... I don't think they specified the particular model of fountain pen that you had to use, but pretty much everyone used a, a Parker Pilot, which is like the standard uh, starter fountain pen for English schoolboys, school mm. children, I suppose. Mm. Um, and uh, it's fairly standard uh, fountain pen. I think it's popular for this purpose because it's very durable. Right. If I use it now, it feels very hard and unpleasant to write with. But, you know, you can drop it on the floor a few times and it will survive the impact. So Mm. (laughs) it's got that going for it. And I never really thought about it. I mean, it was just, you know, it was one of many things that I had to do when I moved into high school, along with learning to put on a tie, Mm. because we have school uniforms in, in the UK, unlike in America. So... Most children, when they turn 11, have to their uniform changes from the typical primary school uniform, which is like a polo shirt and trousers or shorts and like a, a, a sweatshirt. Uh, a high school uniform will usually involve a tie and a blazer marked in the sort of colors of that school. And so, so everyone learns to put on a tie at 11, and I did. And along with that, I also had to learn to use a fountain pen and change the ink cartridges and and just get used to that way of writing. So it wasn't it wasn't something I really thought about. So this is uh, kind of uh, fascinating. Like, why would there be such such a policy that you have to use a fountain pen? Like, what 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 is the purpose of that? I don't know, and I don't know if this is still the case. But you know, it was then, and it, I mean, it's quite a traditional school. And I don't think at the second I changed high school at sixteen, and I don't think they had that policy at the second high school that I went to. It used to be, obviously, you know, I mean, a hundred years ago, that you had to learn to write with a with a uh, dip pen because mm. that was how proper writing was done, right? Before ballpoints were invented, right? I don't know if it's a sort of holdover from that, but we didn't. This wasn't when I say fountain pen. It's not a dip pen. It's not one where you have the ink in the corner and you keep on having to dip it, right? and then write a little bit until the ink comes out and then dip more ink in. A fountain pen has a cartridge inside of the pen 
or sometimes it doesn't have a cartridge. Sometimes the entire body of the pen just contains the ink. Right. And it feeds ink through to the nib as you write. Right. So you, and then, you know, eventually it runs out of ink and then you have to either put in a new cartridge or refill the body of the pen with ink. Mm. But you don't have to dip every other sentence like you do with a dip pen. Mm. So I think it was just considered to be a grown-up pen that grown-ups use to write properly. <laughs> That's uh, especially, I mean, we're talking about the 90s, aren't we? Right, 1995, right. I, I think I started. But I mean, it's, it's a, in a way, I'm glad. I, th- I do think writing with a fountain pen, I do think the writing looks nicer and is smoother. Hmm. There's, you know, there's more of a flow to your writing. And so I think it is quite good for your handwriting, although I personally stand as evidence against that fact because my writing was always terrible at school. Perhaps um, one, I just had a, a theory that perhaps one reason could be to encourage students not to grip and push their pen with too much pressure. Yeah, that's part of what I meant about the way that your writing flows more because a ballpoint right. pen, you have to push quite hard right. and you really sort of dig into the the paper. Right. There are quite a few people who do this even with a fountain pen, so it doesn't doesn't necessarily solve it in one straight, especially with the, the Parker Pilot, which has got a very hard nip. Like okay. You can get away with doing that without damaging the nip. So, mm, okay. uh, and in, in other respects, it's a terrible idea to unleash upon a boys' school because, as you can imagine, I, I don't know how familiar you are with fountain pens, but the way the ink works, unlike a ballpoint pen, which has a sort of gel-like ink mm. that really won't come out unless you press quite hard, Fountain pens use a water-based ink, and it's much more fluid. Right. So if you flick a fountain pen at someone hard, mm. the ink will just fly out of the nib at them. <laughs> you know, it won't... <laughs> which wouldn't happen with a ballpoint pen, right? Excellent. So there's a lot of, of <laughs> flicking of ink at boys' schools. I don't know of girls' schools, which also... I think the sister school of, of my school, which is an all-girls school just down the road mm. i think they had the same rule i'm pretty sure they also had to use a fountain pen right and i don't know if they spent as much time flicking ink at each other <laughs> as we did it was pretty standard to return home with a sort of white uniform buttoned up shirt just splattered with ink and have our poor mothers have to wash that off for us <laughs> i see so you had the you had that background in fountain pens but then i guess uh... so i had that background in fountain pens but then when i left school I stopped using them primarily because when I left school, I basically stopped writing. Mm. I hardly wrote at all by hand. Mm. I mean, I I really did type most things. Right. And now I'm, I try and look back at it and think about, I know that at university, I didn't, I wasn't one of these people who took a laptop into lectures and made notes on the laptop. Right. So if I made notes, I must have made them by hand mm. using pen and paper and i'm trying to think what i used because I, it definitely wouldn't have been a ballpoint pen i've always hated writing with ballpoint pens mm. i've never got along with pencils but i'm pretty sure i'd given up on fountain pens by that point i remember what it was it was one of those uh gel rollerball pens rollerballs yeah i was just gonna say that yeah like I think it might have been the V5 or something i'll i'll see if i can dig it out and put a link in the show notes but there's a couple of pens that have a very, very fine point. Right. And they're, they're Japanese. Japan makes some of the best stationery in the world. That is true. 
so they're, they're Japanese pens and they're not fountain pens, but unlike the ballpoint pens, they have quite a fluid ink. Right. Similar to the, to the fountain pen. But they have a, a sort of sharp pencil-like point, mm. much like a ballpoint pen does. And they're, they're good for writing really fine lines. Right. They're what my parents used, used to use to write on price labels. Mm. And uh, so they, they, we always had a few of them lying around the house. And when I saw how easy they were to use and you could write these very, very fine... Because the fountain pen that I had had quite a thick nib. Mm. So we put down quite thick lines and i like to write quite small characters mm. in this sort of spidery scroll mm. <laughs> that if you lose much of the detail you can't really make it out anymore mm. because all of the sort of holes in the letters like in an a or an o and stuff if the lines are too thick with my handwriting especially when i'm you know just writing normally without putting the effort to to write nicely uh, I they end up just being splotches with no hole in the middle because mm. I just draw them, I write them too small, and and with a thick nibbed pen, it's you know, it, it just you lose all all detail. Mm. So I started using those, and that's what I used on the rare occasion that I had to actually write anything by hand mm. for for about ten years, and then I got back into fountain pens around the time that I was doing that New Year's resolution that I mentioned once before to improve my handwriting. Right. So that was the main reason for it. It was... The reason was not that I thought if I used a fountain pen, it would improve my handwriting. Mm. The reason was that as part of this effort to improve my handwriting, I wanted to find a way to to draw more enjoyment out of the act of writing itself. I see. And those... Uh, very fine-tipped gel pens mm. were very good from a utilitarian standpoint. Right. They served their purpose extremely well, but they didn't, you know, have this nice feel to them. Right. And with fountain pens, they've got a, you know, depending on which pen you get, there's there's a wide variety in the sort of feel of the writing. Mm. You can get a variety of different effects in in your writing if you want to try sort of calligraphic effects and things like that, mm. and you can also it's you can play with other things like the inks for example because you're constantly changing the ink it's not like with those gel pens you just buy the pen it's got the ink that's in it mm. and you just use it until it runs out right mm. with a fountain pen you're always refilling it with your own ink and there's this whole large market of different inks that you can get to mm. to fill it up with so you can get a lot of variety with just a single pen okay so hold on uh before we get onto inks, which is an interesting issue in itself. What's the difference between a cheap fountain pen and an expensive fountain pen? What are you paying for? Well, there's quite a, a large variety, and there's a whole spectrum from the cheapest fountain pens you can get are probably around $10-ish American. Mm. And then, like, the more expensive, I mean, if you go for a really fancy Mont Blanc, you could play, you could, you could end up paying a thousand dollars or something right so there's there's a a range up to a hundred times the price of the cheapest one right and do they feel a hundred times better i suspect not i do not own a thousand dollar mont blanc pen (laughs) (laughs) right so i mean in a sense that this has quite a lot in common with watches right there is a variety in features that are that you can actually sort of tick off and and are notably different Mm. 
there is a variety in quality, just the actual build quality of the, the thing itself, and the, and materials as well. Mm. You can get them made out of a variety of different materials, and these have different effects, both uh, utilitarian effects and also just aesthetic effects. Mm. Uh, and there's brand, which is an important part, an important factor in the price of a pen or, or a watch as well. Mm. As I think we discussed once before, and we should not discuss now, uh, you know, it took us both a while to understand the appeal of Rolex. Right. And, and Rolex watches are, are very expensive, but the, the brand counts for something and, and is actually meaningful. Mm. In the same sense, I think traditional pen brands such as Montblanc or Pelican or, or other brands like that, uh, that you know, that their brand counts for something. Mm. Okay. So to so sort of try and break that down, I suppose. So it's not just a case of an expensive fountain pen giving you a smoother feel on the paper, is it? Not just that. I see. But that is included in the set of parameters. Okay. I see. So one of the one of the big differences, for example, one of the simplest, easiest to understand sort of differences between a cheaper pen and a sort of somewhat more expensive mm. pen. When you start to cross over the $100, $200 mark, one of the, the chief differences is that the nib will be made of gold. Mm. So the, the nib itself is, if anyone doesn't know how fountain pens work, you've got the body of the pen, which is what you sort of tend to think of as the pen, and that will often, well, that, that will have a lid in all cases but one basically mm. uh so that it will it will have a lid because it needs to keep the the pen and the, and the nib dry mm. and then at the very end the thing the metal bit at the end which you sort of think of as the the image of the fountain pen mm. that that sort of comes to a point that is called the nib right and in fact in, in many pens it's actually replaceable you can take the nib off you usually have to if you changing inks you should wash the pen and you you generally have to take it apart to wash it properly. So you can often detach the nib. But that nib on some more expensive pens, not all of them, will be made of gold. Mm. And that's not just a sort of fancy, oh, look at me, I've got many, I've got a gold nib. Right. That does actually make a difference to the feel of writing because oh, okay. gold is a much softer metal than steel. Mm. And so it has much more give in it so that when you when you press it to paper and you write with it, not only will it feel softer and smoother against the page, as you said, mm. but it also allows for more variety in line width so that if you press a bit harder, the line will come out a bit thicker as the, I can't remember the name, the tines of the nib, which are the two sides. It's usually got a split down the middle, right? Mm the tines come apart a little bit and allow more ink to flow out. Hmm. And then when you press less hard, it, it writes a thinner line. With a steel nib, that still exists, but because it's a, a much harder metal, hmm. the tines won't spread apart as much, and so you get less variety hmm. in, the, in the width. Uh, now, even within the, you know, within the bracket of gold nibs, there's still a, a wide variety. There's what's called flex pens or flexible nibs which are designed for the tines to come apart you know quite substantially mm. 
and and that allows you to get this sort of copper plate effect where you have very very thin lines and very very thick lines right that's less common now that used to be much more common in pens it's now very difficult to to find a high quality uh, flex pen that doesn't have all sorts of caveats uh, with it i have one flex pen which is a pilot one and it's uh it's kind of annoying because it's very sensitive to the oil coming off your hands. So if you're okay. writing on a on a piece of paper, the lower down the paper you get, the harder it is for the ink to come out. So it's, wow, you, know, you get all these annoying caveats. But anyway, so that so that's you know that's just one factor, right? Right. That also the the actual body itself might be made of different materials. You know, the mm. the cheaper pens will probably have just a fairly cheap plastic body, or they might have an aluminium body. Mm. The the more expensive pens will often use a, a more expensive kind of resin uh, body. And you can even get some in, what's the Japanese uh, lacquer called? Urushi. Right. Uh, you, can get, you can get some Japanese pens with this very distinctive lacquered look. There must be a lot of fun associated with choosing color as well, because you have, unlike, you know, if you're going to go get a ballpoint or a rollerball, you kind of have four or five standard options like you know black blue green red right uh, and then maybe some fa- some uh, some fun colors for for people who enjoy that kind of thing like purple and and stuff like that but uh right when you get into the world of uh of uh fountain pens and and ink you you could probably uh, the sky's the limit i'm sure for for the kinds of variation in color that you can get right you mean color of the ink, the ink right yeah. the writing color not the color of the pen itself no the ink well there, there is for people who sort of collect fountain pens there, there's a bit of a tendency to try and buy pens in the color of the ink that you're intending to put in it oh, okay so that you can very easily see you know which pen you're going to pick up is going to have which right. color I'm curious about the significance of paper in this equation because you can imagine that paper depending on the grammage depending on the you know the thickness of it and the uh the consistency of the grain and all that kind of that must really affect the experience of writing with even the same pen and different pieces of paper it must be quite different yes it does make a difference especially with fountain pens which as i said before have this water base the ink that a fountain pen uses is is a water-based ink Mm. and so you can imagine that that some papers absorb that better than others, right? Mm. And cheap papers, you'll find that the ink tends to bleed into the page and you get these sort of spidery cracks creeping out from the edge of all your lines. Right, right. With the nicer quality papers, uh, the ink stays much more sort of just where you wrote it. And also, you can't see it through on the other side so much. I see. And that's, I don't know too much about that. That is a, I think the, the thickness of the paper is a part of that. Right. But it's definitely also to do with the makeup of the paper because there's one particular uh, Japanese brand, which is called Tomoe River, mm. which is very thin. It's like Bible thin pages, right. but extremely high quality. And when you when you write on it, you can totally see through to the other side. Mm. That definitely, you know, there's no helping that because it's, I mean, even when you don't write on it, you just hold the paper up and it's semi-transparent because it's so thin. Right. But uh, the you don't get any of this bleeding. Mm. And so it leaves a very nice line on that paper and, and it's extremely smooth. So it feels really nice to write on. Mm. The other thing that is interesting that both the ink and the paper plays into is a property called 
sheen. I see. Which is where the, you think of ink as being a, a color, right? Like blue ink or black ink or whatever. Mm. But fountain pen ink can have a, a sort of variety of different properties. And with this sheen, the idea is that when, when the light catches the ink, especially areas where the ink is sort of pulled a little bit more, mm. where it's, there's a little bit, it's laid down a little bit of a thicker line, as, as different color shines through. And so you might have, I have a, an ink, uh, which is a black ink, but just when you catch it in the right light, you can see this sort of coppery sheen mm. reflecting off. And there's there's a few inks like that. There's also a green ink with a sort of red sheen is is quite a common look. Mm. That sounds that sounds cool. It I mean it looks amazing. Mm. And this this Tomoe River paper uh, really brings out the sheen. Something about the the way the paper is composed. Uh, maybe the fact that the ink lays so flat on it, it doesn't really get absorbed into the paper very much. It just kind of dries on the very surface. Right, and so somehow that that means that the sheen really comes through mm. and you can see some especially if if you want to take photos of it you want to get the paper in the light and bring the camera right down so you get these very low angles on it mm. and you can see I'll, I'll maybe put some links in the show notes to to uh, an image search or something you can you can really see it mm. okay so i want to ask one more question before uh, we get into the the other topic of actually what you're writing, what what one would write with okay. with fountain pens. Sure. Um, one more question about the the gear itself, and that is that: is it necessary when you have a fountain pen? Is it necessary to use it frequently? Is it the kind of thing that if you if you let it sit for a while because you're not writing very frequently, it will clog up or or something will happen to it? Right. Yeah. It is. I see. In general, mm. uh, this also varies a little bit based on the pen, mm. but yes. The, there's a tendency for the the nib and the feed, which is the the part of the pen that that feeds the ink from where it's stored in the cartridge or in the body, and pulls sort of draws it down into the nib mm. to to direct it towards the page. The feed can dry out, mm. and depending on the ink, that can be sort of not such a big deal or it can be a, a real problem i see because inks themselves you don't really think about it when you're just sort of jotting something down but i mean inks are like strange chemical concoctions and they're not like colors on a computer screen where you just choose the appropriate mix of red green and blue to make a color mm. right to make an ink you're actually mixing chemicals together to achieve the effect that you want and and make the color that you want right mm, right and so those those chemicals respond in in different ways to to becoming dried out and i've had pens for example uh i was using an ink called ancient copper mm. by diamine diamine i don't know how to pronounce it. it's a, a british ink company mm. and uh, ancient copper is a beautiful ink it's got this very metallic sort of brown look to it and it's lovely but I left it in my pen for a little bit too long. And then when I went to clean it out, it had formed these sort of almost crystals. Mm. And that's that's really bad. That can damage your pen that's if you do that. So ideally, if you're going to be not using a pen for a while, you should actually wash it 
first and then leave it without any ink in it mm. and you can you can you can draw out the remaining ink and put it into some container right and then and then put it back in when you want to use it again so it's not like you just have to throw it away i see but the what you really should do and i'm not that great at doing it but if you know you're not going to use a fountain pen for a little while then you should do that. You should draw out the ink and, and put it in some sealed container and leave it aside and then wash out the pen so it's clean and then and then leave it. And then it'll be ready for you to use whenever you next want to use it. So that's obviously a lot easier if you if you've only got one pen. Yeah, so that was gonna be my next question is how many pens do you have and how many of them actually have ink in them right now? Uh let me see. I have okay, I've got four within arm's reach. Hmm. There's another three that I keep in my bag, and there's one on my desk at work. I see. And all of them have ink or how many of them are, are actually empty and sort of in storage more or less? And actually all of them have ink. Oh, wow. Okay. But they shouldn't because there's a couple of these that I haven't used for ages and right. probably I'm going to find out that they've dried out. I'm just opening one of them now. Yeah, like this one, this one's completely dried out. So okay. I should really just wash it and leave it because I haven't used it for a long time. Right. So yes, that's that's bad practice on my part. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so the ones that I keep in my bag are actually three copies of the same pen. So the, the Lamy Safari is probably my, my number one recommendation for somebody just starting out with with fountain pens and hmm. they want to get something that is sort of cheap and not too much of a commitment but uh, is is a decent quality pen. I would say either the Lamy Safari or the the Pilot Metropolitan as it's called here it's called the pilot cocoon in japan mm. and i so i have one pilot cocoon and three of these lamy safaris and the fun thing about the safaris is they come in all different colors right and so i've ended up getting i've got a, a black one a purple one and a sort of turquoisey dark green one mm. and they each have the ink of that color in them mm. So that's why I carry these these three around because mm. I can I use the black one for the most part, but you know when I want to sort of highlight something or something I might switch to the purple or to the green. Yeah, I um I really love Lamy pens, but they they they're kind of eccentric in the in that uh, for myself I've never really had that much experience with fountain pens. I had one or two uh, when I was um, uh, much younger just for fun, and uh, they were fun, uh, but. Uh, I when I was in university, uh, I was in university around the same time that you were in high school, and right. at that stage, uh, obviously there was no such thing as taking a laptop to uh, to uh, to university and sitting there typing out your notes. It was all, of course, pens, and you know the uh, I just had the run of the mill Bic ball pens, and the most comfortable instrument that I can think of to actually draw with is the ballpoint pen. And mm. I'm not alone, actually. If you if you uh, go and search online, you'll find quite a lot of people who are really uh, enthusiastic about the ballpoint pen as actually a sort of a high tier artistic implement and a medium in itself. Yeah, I have actually seen some of those. Yeah, posts. and there's some of the artwork they create with just using like standard black, blue, and red mm. big ballpoint pens is incredible. Yeah, the ballpoint pen is. Uh, I, I really like. Like I, I kind of got used to using it for drawing because I did so much drawing during the lectures. <laughs> that is uh, not. This is drawing the important diagrams that the lecturer was explaining to you. Yes, 
in the margin. Uh, yes, uh, well, the, the way that I saw the diagrams anyway in my in my <laughs> d- distracted, youthful, adolescent head. Um, anyway, uh, so I got very comfortable with using ballpoint pens for drawing. And the, the great thing about ballpoint pens and drawing is that uh, you, they are kind of like more permanent versions of pencil in that you can not only can you obviously get you know straight lines of course but you can also use them to shade if you kind of brush a ballpoint pen across the page very very lightly mm. you'll get a very light shade of ink mm. much like you would with a pencil mm. so they're kind of like finer point uh, more permanent versions of pencils when you use them to draw which is why I love them so I quickly found that uh, uh, after university, whenever I needed to draw something, the first thing that I would reach for was a ballpoint pen. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, if I'm if I'm going to be doing this, one of the if I'm going to be doing this, I may as well try and find a way to do it with some degree of quality and re- reliability, because mm. that is the one thing about ballpoint pens for drawing, and that is that they leave blobs of ink on the page when you change direction. So right. when you are when you are drawing, for example, if you're drawing a square you're very likely to get a big blob of ink on the corners of the square as the ball changes direction in the direction that it's rolling. I like the fact that you you want to make sure you've got high-quality pens for your idle doodling that you're doing during a lecture. <laughs> this is very that's important. Right. This comes out yes. as a work of art. <laughs> that, that's right. And so the um, I found that when I uh, am actually drawing like seriously drawing with a ballpoint pen, you need to have a tissue there so that, uh, you know, kind of like dipping your pen into a pot of ink, pretty much every every third or fourth line, you'll be wiping the, 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 the ballpoint off with a tissue so that you don't get so much of that buildup of mm-hmm. the gel ink on the sides of the ball, which is what causes those big blobs. Mm-hmm. Now, I found that uh, uh, Lamy, the brand, the German uh, pen brand, yep. uh, make... Excellent ballpoint pens. They're gel ink ballpoint pens. Not only do the gel cartridges last undoubtedly the longest, like they they last for a really long time, like about mm. six months to a year often, mm. uh, you'd be going on just one cartridge, um, which is fantastic. But mm. strangely enough, the, the, the Lamy cartridges, they don't seem to blob very much. Right, which is great. Which is great. So if you're like me and you're using a ballpoint to draw, then you don't need to be carrying a tissue to <laughs> to wipe it off because it just doesn't really blob very much. And that's purely a result of you know excellent construction and quality control, I suppose. Mm. However, unfortunately, the one thing that I've found through the years with uh, Lamy, and I've had maybe seven or eight different types from their most cheapest to their most expensive, not most expensive, mm-hmm. but one of their very expensive ones. Uh, is unfortunately the quality of the hardware construction often leaves a little bit to be desired. The uh, they don't tend to be that reliable. Unfortunately, that means that eventually, after frequent heavy use, the actual body of the pen will break mm. in some way or other. And that unfortunately has happened with every one of the Lamy pens that I've that I've owned where eventually the body just breaks. Mm. Uh, Either the mechanism breaks or part of it, you know, deteriorates to the point of being, you know, visibly unattractive and, and, you know, obviously uh, uh, kind of broken. Mm. Uh, And and that's a little bit disappointing. But uh, up till now, I've always always, uh, used 
Lamy pens just purely for the quality of their cartridges. So right. it's nice to hear it mentioned there in your uh, in your uh, top picks for uh, new players to the fountain pen world. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never experienced that with their fountain pens, but I'm not a heavy pen user, really. I don't. I don't write nearly as much as as you probably did, so mm. it's difficult for me to say. I haven't heard that complaint. Well, the other thing is that about their fountain pen, there's less but. moving mechanism in a fountain pen than there is in a ballpoint or a like any kind of retractable point. Pen. Certainly, in a in a cartridge based fountain pen uh, like the the Lamy Safaris, that's true. Mm. There are other fountain pens which have more complicated filling mechanisms. Where actually, I would say that the mechanism is probably more complicated mm. than a ballpoint pen. Uh, but yes, for a, a cartridge-based fountain pen, there's really just so long as the feed continues to work and doesn't get warped out of shape, mm. you're you're probably okay. Mm. So my next question then is, what are you writing? Because I would love to own a fountain pen again, because mm. I, I I do have very good memories of just how smooth it feels to be writing on a piece of paper, and I tend to unfortunately grip my pens too tightly which means that eventually my hand gets sore. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if whether or not a fountain pen would help me help to sort of train myself to hold the pen with a lighter touch. But the, the problem... It might. The, the nice thing about the Safari is that it's got this... The shape of the barrel mm. encourages good form. Yeah. Which some people like and some people hate because if, if people don't want to hold it like that, then it's sort of problematic. Yeah. But it's got this sort of triangular... The, the top has two straight edges that form a sort of triangle on the top half, and then the bottom half is circular. So it feels soft in your hand where it's resting on, on usually your middle finger, but then your index and your thumb can rest on these straight segments, mm. and that encourages you to hold it at the sort of right angle in, in the right way. Yeah, one of the, um, the Lamy Safari ballpoint is uh, one of my favorites for drawing, actually. But anyway, right. um, yeah, my, the, the, unfortunately for myself... Other than drawing, in which case I want to use a ballpoint, I just don't really have anything to write. And uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I use a notebook, so I suppose I could be writing in that, but I'm usually drawing more than I'm writing. Right. And uh, other than that, it's just like signing forms or, you know, writing on an envelope or taking small little post-it notes and putting something on them. Uh, Hardly, I I would think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, maybe you can correct me, but hardly really a good kind of application for you know a high grade writing experience that a fountain pen provides yeah i mean well you know it's up to you i'll be honest i don't do that much handwriting either right Mm. i i'm mostly just not jotting down notes to myself and i mostly do that at work when i'm sort of trying to organize my thoughts and so that's why the the pen that i have at work is actually my favorite pen Mm of the ones that I own right now, which is the Twisby 580 AL. Mm. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But that's it's not the most expensive pen that I own, and it's not the, the most fancy, mm. but it's the best balance of being nice, of having a good feel to it, writing nicely, having a pretty fine point, and it's a piston-based filling mechanism. So instead of having cartridges that you put in... Mm. Uh, the idea is that you unscrew the top and pull this piston up. And so you you literally stick the nib of the pen into your bottle of ink and then you unscrew the back and you pull it up. And that works like a, 
like a syringe. It just sucks the ink up into the body of the pen itself. Don't you get air bubbles? Yeah, but it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> you, I mean, you know, you can you can lift it up and point it upwards and, and push them back out again if you want to, but it doesn't matter if it's got a couple of air bubbles in it. Mm. Uh, the, the main point is that you can fill it with much more ink than will fit in a cartridge because you've got all that space, the entire body, to fill with ink. To what extent do you, do you need to take care with the pens when you... Because it's got like a whole bunch of, you know, <laughs> liquid ink inside it. And uh, right. you kind of... Like I tend to spin my pens in my hand a lot when I'm thinking. You wouldn't <laughs> want to do that with a fountain pen, would you? Uh, well, yeah, I would encourage you to be very good at it. <laughs> You wouldn't want to drop it because if you drop it on the nib, then you'll damage the nib. Right. And if you don't, if you just drop it on the side, then, as I mentioned before, the flicking of the ink, uh. you'll get probably some ink will come out and sort of splash onto your page. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you probably want to leave the lid on if you're going to be fiddling with it like that. Mm. I don't tend to fiddle so much, so I don't. It's not something I've had to worry about. Mm. Uh, but it's not super delicate. Mm. Like the the you know something with a gold nib that is sort of much softer and much much more fragile, you might need to be more careful with. But with something like the, the Lamy Safari or this Twisby, you don't have to be that careful, really. Mm. You do want to make sure that you when you put if you're putting them in your bag to carry around or something like that, you want the nib to be pointing upwards, right? Uh, to avoid leaking, right? If the nib's pointing downwards that's obviously the way the ink is designed to come out. And so, you know, it shouldn't, but it might leak. Uh, so, so yeah, you want, you want to keep it uh, nib pointing upwards. Mm. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's not too much of a problem. Okay. So, so I have that sitting on my desk at work, and whenever I need to sort of make notes at work or if I need to quickly go to a meeting, I have a notebook and I have that pen and I just take it with me and I can write. Uh, at home... I have all these... Oh, and in my bag, I've got these three Lamy Safaris, which I just generally use. I also keep a small pocket-sized notebook in my bag. So if something occurs to me, I might write it down. Or if I'm out and about and I need to fill in a form or something, I've always got a pen on me, which is nice. Mm. With the ones at home, I don't make an awful lot of use of. The the pilot that I mentioned before, which is a Falcon nib, which allows you to do the uh, thick and the thin lines... I only use that, I only really break that out for when I'm writing Christmas cards or I'm writing a letter that I want to sort of really put the effort into mm. having the fancy sort of a copper plate style of writing. Because uh, it's, like I said before, it's a, it's a bit of a faff to use. And it also, it won't go all that thin. Mm. So ideally, a really good quality flex nib will go very thin as well as quite thick. But this one... There's a limit to how thin it can write. And so if I'm just trying to write with it, usually I'll get that same problem where I end up having blotches and having the holes filled in with ink mm. and, and problems like that. Uh, then I have another couple of pens, which are just fairly cheap ones, the the Pilot Cocoon and another one, which is by Sailor, which is a, a demonstration pen. So it's completely transparent and you can see how the whole mechanism works. And uh, I have those filled with blue and red ink. Uh, respectively and i use those for i use red ink sometimes to mark up my work when i'm sort of making mistakes and things mm. if i'm doing exercises for language learning and, and things like that sometimes i'll go so sort of do some exercises and then go through and literally mark it like a teacher would 
And the other thing I do is I haven't done recently, but for a while I was experimenting with this bullet journal thing, which I think we mentioned once before when we were talking about to-do apps. Mm -hmm. It's like an analog pen and paper based uh, to-do app almost. Right. And uh, the one thing you do with that is you actually write out a calendar each month. Mm. You you put the month name at the top and then you you literally write out sort of the numbers 1 to 28 or to 30 or 31 and then the days of the week next to it. And in the Japanese tradition, I write Saturday in blue and Sunday in red. So it's useful to have a blue and a red pen <laughs> lying around. That's nice. <laughs> but basically once a month for about four weekends worth of writing, right. <laughs> I break them out. Uh, so, And I have another pen, which is a uh, stub nib. So that allows you to get the italic style of writing, mm. where you hold the pen at a 45 degree angle so that when you're writing straight down, the line comes out fairly thick. If you write a, a line at sort of a 45 degree 45 degrees up and to the right then it will be a very thin line uh, and if you if you do up and to the left it will be the thickest line and so just by keeping the the nib at that angle you can get this sort of italic style of of writing well i'm just looking at uh some pictures of twisby fountain pens these look cool they're great and they're they are i think they're a great sort of next step up from something like the lamy safari because they're they're kind of in the next price bracket i think they tend to be about anywhere between 50 and 80 dollars or something but they're still you know still less than 100 for the most part they look really nice and they've got these more uh complex filling mechanisms like a piston fill or a vacuum fill mm. which is really the, the next step up from a cartridge-based fountain pen is to get something with with a, a more interesting filling mechanism like that i see this is uh this is nice they've actually uh won a red dot design award in 2010 for one of their uh one of their fountain pen designs which is great for those who didn't know, oh, cool. Red Dot is the uh, one of the world's, I think, four or five uh, industrial design, product design awards. Red Dot is one of those. And um, mm. yeah, I was uh, fortunate to work under a lead designer previously who had uh, won a Red Dot design award. And uh, so I know what goes into actually uh, designing a product that is worthy of such a, an award. Mm. So uh uh, that's that's really impressive. Yeah, uh, they're a Chinese company, mm. which is not a traditional. You know, the, the the main companies that you think of for producing high quality stationery are Japan and Germany, and wherever Mont Blanc's from, mm. <laughs> France, or is it Switzerland? I, yeah, it's one of those. That's why I right. didn't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Th those are sort of traditional uh, countries that, that are known for producing high quality stationery, right? And China doesn't have that reputation, but Twisby have been sort of establishing themselves as a, a bit of a an upstart, and they make pretty high quality pens that are very good, and they are quite cheap. I mean, they are very competitively priced. So mm. I think they're a great, they're sort of a great point in the in the market because you're still not into the kind of luxury bracket at that point you know it's it's still reasonably casual but they're high quality and they they've got these sort of next level features that most pens less than a hundred dollars don't have so so i think they're pretty great for anybody interested twisby is spelled t-w-s-b-i yeah i don't know what it stands for and the 580 al model goes for 60 dollars. so there you go that is an affordable felt slightly above ultra affordable 
fountain pen price if anybody's interested. Right, yeah, I'll stick a link in the show notes. But I, yeah, I think if you've never had a fountain pen, probably a Pilot Metropolitan or a Lamy Safari, which will do you about 20 to $30, is a good starting point. And if you like it, I think a Twisby is a great second pen to get. Excellent. I, you know, just to, actually this conversation has made me realize that actually I do write quite a lot more than I thought I did. <laughs> I think you probably write more than I do. Because I, um, when with our team, when we're having uh, meetings, I'm always the one taking minutes. And right. for a while I was trying to do that with a keyboard. But because we're designing games, obviously, you need to be able to quickly switch into drawing diagrams and drawing things right. uh, to il- illustrate what people are talking about. And so as a result, for the past, what, year, two years, three years, I've actually kept notebooks writing down minutes instead of uh, typing them out. So when I think about it now, actually, yeah, I do do a lot of writing. So do you find that uh, a fountain pen – everybody, I swear this is the last question about fountain pens. We're going to move on in a moment, (laughs) but just one more thing. Do you find that if you need to write very, very quickly, is a fountain pen good for that or not? I think it, it depends on a couple of factors. Partly technique. Once you get the knack of writing without pressing too hard on the page i think you can write much more quickly because Mm. you just don't have to put as much physical pressure although it helps to have a good surface if you're going to do that because if you're just sort of holding your notebook up in your hand and writing with the other hand all right yeah then you do actually need to press a little bit harder just to keep the thing stable so there's that it also partly depends on on the fountain pen i find that the lamy safari for example is very good at just even if you haven't used it for a while you can just take off the lid, start writing, and generally the ink will just start flowing straight away. Mm. The Twisby 580 that I have, if I haven't used it for a little while, then I find that sometimes the ink can be a bit slow to start. And in the worst cases, I actually have to sort of jump start it by, uh, you know, I said there's a screw at the top that works like a syringe. Right. So like a syringe... I can push the ink down back into the feed if I need to, right? I can push pressure down from the top. When you say leave it for some time, is that like, are we talking like a Monday morning and the last time you used it was a Friday afternoon? Is that some time? Right, right. Yeah, something like that. I see, I see. Uh, So sometimes the first time I pick it up and use it, then sometimes I... Uh, sometimes just scribbling a little bit is enough to get it going. But sometimes I do have to sort of jumpstart it by pushing down with this piston. Mm. And then it writes fine and smoothly and nicely. But it is a thing to be aware of that if if that's a concern, if you want to be able at a moment's notice to just pick up a pen and start writing and not have any problems, then a ballpoint pen might be a bit more reliable or a gel pen might be a bit more reliable than a fountain pen. Mm. Fountain pen, that's not necessarily going to be problematic. But if you're going to be leaving it without using it for you know a day or two, uh, then it is something you need to be careful of. And some pens will perform better than others. Mm. I think the Safari does pretty well. I think the Safari does better than the Metropolitan. And it also does better than the Twisby. Mm. Okay. I might uh, look into getting myself a Safari, actually, because I, I love the, the form of the Safari, obviously, for for holding, because I'm, I'm quite used to it with the ballpoint for drawing. Mm. But, uh, yeah, considering actually, or reconsidering actually how much writing I do actually do, mm. yeah, actually, I, I guess I'd be a good candidate for somebody to enjoy the pleasure of fountain pen. Um, speaking of having to write a lot, I uh, one thing I'm, I've been a little bit disappointed since coming to Sweden is that it's not very paperless. 
uh, by default. You can set things up. Right. Yeah, you can set things up um, so that you get you know less invoices and and this and that in the post. But uh, I've actually been somewhat surprised about how much Swedish Swedish bureaucracy relies on post and you know actual pieces of paper that go around that need physical signatures on them and things like that mm. coming you know from Japan which is uh, <laughs> yes Japan is uh, even more uh, let's not say backward let's just say cons- traditional when it comes to the importance of the original document and the piece of paper that something's written on and and uh, you know whether it's been written without error, right. or if it has been written with error, that it, that error has been uh, verified by the actual person, right? Uh, and their seal of approval, literal seal of approval, to say that this was an <laughs> error that I made and I have rewritten it, and it doesn't, and the rewritten version was written by me and not yeah. crossed out by some phony imposter. Uh-huh. I am, of course, referring to the uh, the legendary tradition of ah. Oh, the Japanese word has just completely escaped me for a moment. You have to put ah teisei in. That's it. Mm. You have to uh, you have to re- cross it out with two lines, write the correct version, and then take your uh, seal and put this, which is like a red stamp, right. and put it on top of the correction to authorize it as being an official correction made by the person. Right. And the seal is what- is it takes the place of the signature. So even at the not just where these corrections happen. But even at the end of the document, often instead of signing it, you will place this red stamp, which mm-hmm. has your name on it, which is your official seal. Yeah, that was when I first got to Japan, that was really exciting. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow, I'm in Asia now. They use red stamps. Uh, yeah. But after a little while, I realized this is kind of weird <laughs> because anybody can have a stamp made that says anything. So, uh, yeah, any, right. anyway. Uh, what was I talking about? I was talking about uh, the the paperless system. So that thing where you have to stamp where you make mistakes. I mean, that's not. I think it's pretty standard here in the West as well that you initial where you make mistakes. Really? Well, that that aspect I think uh, in Sweden seems to be much more casual. Like you can just cross something out because it's, it's generally a person who's reading it, and they, you know, I mean, they're going to be able to look at it and tell, oh, okay, they made a mistake here, right? And it's not somebody just crossing it out and rewriting it. But yeah, uh, coming back to the original point was that you know Japan is a little bit even a little bit further along that side of the spectrum away from paperless, in that uh, they even still enjoy the good old fax machine, yeah, which is uh, a little bit well not a little bit which is more or less obsolete in um, in uh, most other developed countries around the world, but not in Japan anyway. Uh, I've been yeah a little bit disappointed that uh, Sweden relies quite heavily on on posts and letters and and I just have a lot of paper which is great when you're thinking about getting a fountain pen but not so great when you're thinking about the, when you're thinking about you know reducing the amount of physical clutter in the office especially in this day and age where so much of that can be uh stored digitally and much more conveniently you know accessed uh, when it's in a digital form rather than uh, on a piece of paper I mean for contracts and things like that I can sort of understand why they have that. And I kind of think that's probably pretty common in in most places. Mm. For statements, I'm sure that Sweden must have options for your bank account and things like that to receive your statements digitally instead of sending them in the post. Yeah, I think that there are options. There's actually um, a 
there's this whole new world opening up to me at the moment because I've uh, recently completed the process of getting a social security num a social security number in Sweden, mm -hmm. and uh, that means that uh, uh, suddenly, you know, you get a whole lot more access to yeah these digital services. So yeah, I assume that there there are convenient ways to reduce the amount of posts that's coming. Uh, one of those actually is an official app, a mobile app mm -hmm. that uh, communicates with government offices. And uh, you can actually set things up so that this app will receive official uh, government documents that are sent to you mm. uh, digitally on your phone, which you can then, I guess, I don't know, I haven't looked at it yet, transfer to your computer right. so that you uh, don't have to deal with all the posts. There you go. That sounds very convenient. I mean, that sort of thing would just be impossible here. Really? In America, because the government organizations are all so disparate. Oh, okay. Firstly, there's the federal government, and then there's the state level, and then they've got all these different departments. And so you've got all these individually sort of independently moving parts, mm. and there's no notion of a kind of central place which can just deal with everything. Okay, I see, yeah. So that was going to be my next question then, is uh, how is America when it comes to being paperless i mean i think it's a, a similar story you can you can get your statements for everything for your uh, gas and electricity and your house and for your bank statements and all of that you you can get and are encouraged to get all those just delivered to you digitally so mm. you don't have to receive them in the post uh the dmv is notoriously slow to get with the times so anything to do with your car registration or anything like that involves a lot of paper flying back and forth. Mm. Also, I've been listening to the talk show recently, which is John Gruber's podcast. And just the last couple of weeks, he's mentioned a couple of things just in passing about America that sort of is sort of mind-blowing for anybody outside of America is that they still use checks a lot here. Right. You know, like physical checks where you write down, pay to the sum of blah, 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 to so, so forth. Yeah. Those are still in common use and just doing bank transfers is not nearly as, as standard as it is elsewhere in the world. Right. Chip and pin was only introduced to America a couple of years ago. Sorry, what? And, you know, chip and pin credit cards where the credit card has got a chip. Oh, okay. Right. And when you pay for something, you put it in and then you just type in your pin number. Right, right. Here, that's a relatively recent innovation. People don't really like it. And uh, and you have to go through this whole dance, like when you go to a restaurant, for example, where you say you'd like the bill, they bring you the bill, you leave your credit card on the table, at some point they come and take away your credit card, Yeah. then they bring you back a copy of the receipt for you to sign, and then you sign it and write the tip, and then you can go sort of thing so it's not like that sort of in europe and japan as well it's standard that they just bring the card reader to you yeah. you stick in your cards type in your pin and you're done yeah that, that's one good thing about uh, well okay there having just said that uh, i'm surprised how much paper there what there is here sweden is by and large cashless right and that's really great so i actually th this is true and it's not an exaggeration i've been here now for what is it like five months or so and I have never seen or used Swedish cash at all. Right. Once. Right. So I didn't even. I don't even know what the notes look like, <laughs> and uh, that's great. So that's you, so that's an interesting thing that I read about recently. Mm. I I think that sounds very convenient and nice, and I also try and avoid cash when I can. You know, in America you can get by just with 
card in a lot of places. Mm. But I was reading an article recently about how this sort of cashless society, and I think it might have mentioned Sweden specifically, is is great and everything, so long as you're sort of in a stable middle-class financial position. Yeah. But it actually makes it very difficult for people who are who are just struggling a little bit because they even if they manage to get some sort of cash together, there's no way they can use it unless they can get a credit card. And they can't get a credit card yeah. unless they've got, you know, yeah. accommodation and some sort of credit history and, and all of this. Yeah, that's that's very true. So the minute when I say that cashless is great, the minute that you the minute that you think any deeper about it beyond just the day to day convenience of not having to fiddle around with bits of paper and, and shrapnel. Right. Uh, the, right. the minute you delve deeper, it gets pretty ugly pretty quickly. Because when you think about right. it, yeah, a credit card. When you're using a credit card, somebody's making money off you. Uh, you know, right. you, you pay a bank a fee in order to have it to own a credit card, and of course, you know, the, it's a credit card, which means the bank is giving you credit, which they will then, you know, um, deduct from your bank account, and then there'll be interest involved if if that's what's going to if that's the system that's going on, and you. You know, if it's taking you, if you want to split up the repayment into chunks or whatever, so it is a credit card. I mean, before you even get to that, like you need a bank account. Oh, there is that. Like, not not everyone can have a bank account, yeah. right? There's some, you know. So. Yeah. So that that is true, and um, yeah. So you probably don't want to think any more deeper than just the daily convenience of it. <laughs> um, there is actually uh, the two other convenient things that they have here uh, to replace uh, cash is an app called Swish. And Swish is an app that's used in Sweden. Basically, it's it's a, it's a verified app that's attached to your bank account mm. that is set up for you by your bank mm. or by the banks. And um, basically, uh, it allows you to transfer money directly to other people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you are you know if you go to a restaurant with some friends and somebody pays the bill on their credit card, then uh, you can just say, "Oh." You know, I'll swish you so and so amount of right, crowns right. for the, for the meal, and and then that's that. Right. The other thing that they use quite frequently here is something called Bank ID, mm. and Bank ID is a uh, also set up for you by the bank. It's a uh, an electronic identification system, so um, that allows you to basically have. And to be honest, actually, I don't know exactly the details of how it works because I haven't actually gotten to the point of getting that yet mm. but uh, bank id is very very essential for most of the the digital services in this country so all of my uh, my journey towards a more paperless lifestyle here uh, has uh, yet to begin in proper which is probably why i feel right now that there's just so much paper flooding in every day all these like you know invoices and all this and stuff which are, right. there must I be i mean i think that is an inevitable part of moving to a new country starting up a new sort of business in that country right. as well as moving into a new flat like right yeah. all of these things involve a lot of pain opening a bank account and and all of these things mm, yeah that's right but as you say yeah i think um uh the idea of cashless like i from a day-to-day point of view uh it's it's wonderful because you know my wallet is the size of a credit card <laughs> right i have a very small handmade I, this this is a product that you probably should put a link in the show notes for because it's fantastic. I have a uh, it's a handmade leather uh, wallet by a brand called Das Offenmeer Leather Company. They're local. They are actually 
an, uh, it's one guy based in Hawaii. So it's an American company. Actually. Oh, right. Yeah. And oh, okay. He makes uh, – I have a, his uh, wallet, which is called the Gun Deck. Mm. Uh, he's, an, he's an ex-military guy who's uh, come back and um, decided to start up his own company making these very, very cleverly designed wallet designs out of single pieces of leather. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all a single piece of leather that's cut very very carefully, so that all he has to do is fold it and stitch it in one right. place, and and the whole thing just sits by itself perfectly and has a little mm. little lid that kind of tucks into itself, um, so that things don't fall out. And because there's no sort of joints or or zips or even there's only one seam, mm. uh, they last an extremely long time. Mm. And uh, yeah, this is uh, something that you can. Certainly, put a link in the show notes for because this wallet is fantastic. Anyway, this wallet wouldn't be possible without uh, a uh, cashless society because uh, right, yeah. it doesn't. It, it holds a few notes, but um, it's designed obviously for you know uh, sort of card card centric lifestyle. Yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely convenient. You know, if you if you are in the situation where you don't have to worry about these sorts of things, it's it's very convenient. Mm. So. Uh, there we go. 